tonight I want to talk about emptiness and friendship. Since the beginning of the retreat, we've been talking about different aspects of our personalities and our conditioning and how we relate to ourselves and the world. And the last day or so, we started looking into how maybe this idea of who we think we are isn't quite so solid, isn't quite what we thought it was. It begins to, the concept begins to break down a bit. So tonight I want to look into this, one of the aspects of the Buddhist teachings, which is emptiness, when things really break down. (laughs) But in some ways we may find that maybe it isn't so different than what we've been talking about, that maybe we'll see that it has a great deal to do with friendship, which is basically the theme of what we've been discussing since the beginning of the retreat making friends, finding this compassionate place in ourselves. And this is what emptiness has to do with. Unfortunately, the word emptiness often brings about associations that aren't very helpful. I know that for me, for quite some time, in trying to understand emptiness, trying to understand it with my intellect, it would often just leave me with a sense of being cold or dry. You know, it didn't seem, I couldn't, couldn't grasp it on an intellectual level. It seems to imply some kind of non-existence, the absence, voidness. And then it can leave us with a feeling of kind of coldness or hopelessness if it isn't understood correctly. So it has to, we have to be very careful not to attach ourselves to an idea, an idea which is in the intellect, an idea of what we think emptiness is, because this is not emptiness. This is just the idea of emptiness. So until one really tastes the sweetness, really let it go deep into the heart, there's no use of trying to understand it with the mind. So just letting this exploration tonight just drop into something that isn't intellectual and see if something else can be touched something in the heart. We use this word heart really as something that's not mind, something that's not mind or the intellect. It's not the organ of the heart. (laughs) But it's a sense of dropping, dropping down into some deeper part of ourselves. We call this the heart. It's a metaphor 
a useful metaphor, I think. So in order to explore this concept, this idea of emptiness, we need to begin with the ego, with the self, with the sense of I, that which believes that it's in control, that it's the director of the show. Because the ego has ideas about what it wants, what it wants for itself, how it wants to be, and it takes the responsibility to achieve its goals. This ego, ego is I, using these words interchangeably, the sense of self or I or ego. It's the I taking control, what you've all seen here. The I that says, if only I could get it right, the pain would go away. If only I could face what's happening, then I'll understand. If only I could be less spaced out, more focused, less judgmental. If only I could... If only I could let go. What's wrong with me that I can't let go? I, I, I. These ideas of what the I wants are usually completely believed in. They're hardly ever questioned. And so this controlling ego just keeps getting reinforced. And our habits just keep getting reinforced, the sense of I. And then we wonder why we remain unhappy and unfulfilled. The ego is interested in experiences, and it's interested in results. For example, on the retreat, we usually get the meditator's ego, what the meditator is interested in. The meditator is usually interested in calm and stillness, insight, depending on what kind of retreat it is, sometimes empty mind, no thought, compassion, realization, bliss, relaxation, opening of the heart. There's always something... (laughs) something that the I wants to see happening. And then if it's not happening, then there's some sense of something's not happening the way it should be. The controlling factor is quite strong. But we need some way to get out of this loop of the I wanting, the I controlling. And it seems that the only way to get out of the loop is when we stop, when we stop being so concerned about the experiences that are happening. When we stop being concerned about what's happening, whether it's here on the retreat or in our daily life situations, because we can see that we can't control Anyhow, when we try to control, it doesn't necessarily work. We don't usually get what we want. 
something else is happening anyhow. So until we actually get that deeply, that we don't have to be concerned about what's happening, about the experiences themselves, then we can start looking directly into this I, into this sense of self. Who is having the experience? Who is the controller? So we shift this investigation. Rather than being concerned about making our meditation going a particular way, our lives going a particular way, we ask the question, who is trying to do this? Who is this I? How do we begin this investigation? Where do we start investigating the I? It's actually very simple. It's not as complex as it may sound. We begin by looking into the mind. The sense of I or the ego is made up of identifying with and grasping on to thoughts of I. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what happened to me in the past. I like this. I don't like that. I go here. I go there. This set of identification that arises in thought, the I thought. So to understand the ego, we just have to look at the I thought. Because we take these thoughts to be the truth of who we are. And it's the collection of thoughts that create the sense of I, the sense of ego. Sometimes you can just sense this I thought just arising. I'm sure you've had the experience here. There's just a thought that arises in the mind and you see it. There's a clear awareness and it's just oh yeah, there's that thought and you can just see it bubble up and it passes away. There's no identification with it. This is a moment of freedom from that identification, from that sense of ego, of I. Because we can see that the thought is insubstantial. There's no I in there. There's no solid person in there. It's just a thought. It just arises and passes away back into the vastness, into the voidness. But then you might say, well, we have these bodies and they definitely seem solid. You know, maybe we can see these thoughts just, you know, rise and pass away. But what about these bodies? You know, they seem quite dense and hard and solid. But when we really look closely What is the experience of having a body? We've been doing that here. What is the direct experience of a body? We experience the body through sensation, through 
through sense impression. The eyes, we see images. The nose, there's smells. The tongue, their tastes. The ears, their sounds. The skin, there's touch. And then we feel emotions or feelings, sensations in the body. So we have these sensations that there's awareness of, awareness of sensations, sense impressions. And then a thought comes in, and thought says, I am seeing this flower, or I am tasting peanut butter, and I don't like it. Or I am in a lot of pain. Sensations arising in the body, the thought, I'm in a lot of pain. I really don't want to be here. The thought overlays on the experience, on the bare experience of sensation that we call body, that thought says, this is body. And then this gives us the sense that this is happening to me. We say, yeah, these sensations are mine. They're happening to me. And this is the I thought. The identification with experience that's occurring through the I thought, the mind. But when we look closely and carefully, we really do see that thoughts have no substance. They're like bubbles arising and disappearing. You can't catch them. They just keep, they're very elusive. They keep disappearing. Where is the me in that experience? Where is this I in that experience, in the experience of sensation or the experience of thought? The only way to maintain belief in a self is to believe and identify with thought. Thoughts of past, thoughts of the present, and thoughts of the future. We pace these thoughts together. We get this sense of continuity or solidity. It's very much like when we go to see a movie. If we go in the back and we see the projector man and we stop the film and we take out what's actually the film, we take a look at it, it's just these frames. One frame, another frame, another frame. But we put it in the projector and we play it. It gives us a sense of a story, the illusion of a real story. In the same way, our thoughts give us the sense or the illusion that there's really something happening. (laughs) We believe in these stories and these dramas. We come here and the mind quiets down. And this whole structure of who I am begins to break down. Just begins to slip. Just begins to collapse a little bit. These beliefs, images, ideas, concepts about who I am, they're not quite believed in as much as they were when we first came. 
Maybe it's not who I am. Maybe there's something else that's starting to show itself. We see that they change so quickly. How can we say, this is who I am? Where is the solid identity in that? When this structure of ego, of self, begins to slip a bit, the ego, from the ego's point of view, this is pretty scary. The ego doesn't want this to happen. It doesn't want to see its existence start to fall apart, to collapse. So we might say it begins to rebel, begins to throw temper tantrums, becomes to feel fearful, might feel doubtful. Wait a minute. (laughs) I don't think this practice is very good. Maybe you ought to find something else. This really isn't working. You know, that the strong parental voice <laughs> takes on lots of disguises <laughs> to try to get you to listen. Wait a minute, I don't want to die. <laughs> when you're not when you're not listening to it, a lot of fear. Fear shows itself. Please stop. Don't keep going. The nature of fear is to stop, to keep us from going forward, from moving forward. Might be, ego might throw up some dullness. Oh, just go to sleep. (laughs) Don't look anymore. Don't pay attention. Just, you need a rest. You know, take a break. Go have a cup of tea. (laughs) Doesn't want, doesn't want to see the truth. We'll do everything it can to stay in power, to stay in control. It'll just keep returning back to what's safe and familiar and known. Doesn't want to go into the unknown. Because mind, ego, I, it only operates out of what's known. When you start moving into the territory of the unknown, the mind can't go there. It doesn't know what to do with that. <laughs> so it says, get back here into the known. Get back here where I can, I can understand things. Things make sense. And then the mind's back in control. The intellect can work there. It doesn't like this place where it gets quiet and unfamiliar. So as we start to see thought simply as thought, when we start to see the insubstantiality, the lack of substance, the solid sense of ourselves starts to loosen. Have you had moments when you're not so caught up in worrying about the past or evaluating and commenting about the present or fantasizing about the future? When you're not involved so much in the thinking, maybe times when you've been walking out in the forest, 
or just listening to a bird as, he, as you've been sitting in the hall. Sometimes the birds outside are so beautiful with the rain, just the soft drizzle of the rain. Or if you're sitting late at night and there's not much noise, everything's perfectly still. Or you're taking a moment of just tasting something that's so delicious, everything just stops but that explosion of taste. Then there's just seeing or just hearing, just smelling, just tasting, feeling, touching. Where is the I? Where is the me in that experience? The Buddha said, in the seeing there is just the seen. In the hearing there is only what is heard. In the thinking there is only what is thought. Just the thought. Even when thought arises, where is the I? Where is the one who is thinking? I want to read something by a very great Tibetan Lama who passed away last year. His name is Dilge Kense Rinpoche. He was considered to be a great Buddha, one of the teachers of the Dalai Lama. He says, when sunlight falls on a crystal, lights of all colors of the rainbow appear, yet they have no substance that you can grasp. Likewise, all thoughts in their infinite variety, devotion, compassion, harmfulness, desire, are utterly without substance. There is no thought that is something other than emptiness. If you recognize the empty nature of thoughts at the very moment they arise, they will dissolve. Attachment and hatred will never be able to disturb the mind. No negative actions will be accumulated so no suffering will follow. We're talking about something very important if we're talking about the end of suffering. The Tibetan lamas, they really giggle when somebody tries to find the mind They say, no one's ever found this mind. Nobody's ever seen this mind. And they giggle and giggle and giggle. (laughs) They say, go look for it. See if you can find this mind. Where is it? This belief in the concept of I, of self, of me, this really is the hardest concept to let go of. Of all the concepts, we might see into lots of concepts and see, yeah, that isn't what it really is. But this one's particularly difficult. 
we really believe that I am a solid, separate entity. I am separate from everything else. We believe that there is a permanent entity, a permanent entity in the mind, in the body, which is experiencing all of this. An entity which is separate from the process itself, like there's, there's, there's me and then the process that's happening to me. We create the idea that someone's here and then our whole lives revolve around protecting and gratifying and defending this sense of I. And this is all revolving around a concept that's false. Are we separate from the process itself? Or is it just the process? It seems we get caught because everything's happening so quickly. There's these five senses and thought. Just this. These six experiences. Five senses, sense impressions, and thought. Coming and going, coming and going in rapid succession. It's like the film. We take the story to be true. We also get caught. It's a, an illusion of the solidity. It's like you're holding a piece of wood that's flaming on fire, and you whirl it around. What you'll see is the illusion of a circle, of a solid circle. But when you stop, it's just a stick burning with fire. It's not a circle at all. But we get tricked into perceiving the solidity of things rather than what's actually there. When we become still and get quiet, this process slows down. And then we can actually see these rapidity of, ch- rapidity of changes. We can begin to see this in our experience. It's almost strobe-like, moment after moment after moment after moment. It's like a star sparkling in the sky, just this sparkling display of experience. So instead of getting deluded into this solid sense of self, we begin to see what's actually happening this moment-to-moment-to-moment of impression, sense impression, and thought, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, hearing, listening, thinking, all these experiences in rapid succession, these phenomenon appearing and disappearing, appearing and disappearing, out of a great vastness, out of a great sense of emptiness, In many traditions, especially the Tibetan tradition, they talk of emptiness being the same as fullness. They say the expression of emptiness is this vast magical display of appearances and forms. They say because of the kindness of emptiness itself, all things have room for expression. 
emptiness is talked about as having a luminosity expressed through energy and light. An all-pervasive and compassionate energy which gives rise to ceaseless manifestations. So it can seem like when we talk of emptiness, we're talking about nothingness. But is it really that it's fullness? With our clear light of awareness in seeing the insubstantiality of thoughts and sensations and feelings, we can't find this I which is stable and solid and fixed. And yet something seems to be happening. We can't say that nothing's happening. Something seems to be happening. But we're just not absolutely sure what it is because it's always changing, it's always moving. Kalu Rinpoche, another very great Lama, he said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this reality. When you finally know and understand this reality, you will see that you are nothing and being nothing you are everything that is all you will see that you are nothing and being nothing you are everything that is all in knowing that I am everything What this points to is seeing the interconnectedness of all things. If I am everything, then I'm connected to everything. I'm not separate from anything. Nothing's foreign, nothing's separate, and therefore there's nothing to fear. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master, Vietnamese Zen master, He uses this word interbeing, that we are interbeings, that no being exists by themselves. I'd like to read something from one of his books. This book is The Heart of Understanding, and this chapter is called Interbeing. Perhaps this will continue to clarify If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not there, the sheet of paper cannot be there either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. Interbeing is a word that is not in the dictionary yet, but if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, interbe. Without a cloud, we cannot have paper, 
So we can say that the cloud and the sheet of paper inter-are. If we look into the sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even if even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. The paper and the sunshine inter-are. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill to be transformed into paper. And we see the wheat. We know the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. And therefore, the wheat that becomes his bread is also in this sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look in this way, we see that without all of these things, this sheet of paper cannot exist. Looking even more deeply, we can see that we are in it too. This is not difficult to see, because when we look at a sheet of paper, the sheet of paper is part of our perception. Your mind is in here, and mine also. So we can say that everything is in here with the sheet of paper. You cannot point out one thing that is not here. Time, space, the earth, the rain, minerals in the soil, the sunshine, the cloud, the river, the heat. Everything coexists with the sheet of paper. That is why I think the word interbe should be in the dictionary. To be is to interbe. You cannot just be by yourself alone. You have to interbe with every other thing. This sheet of paper is because everything else is. As thin as this sheet of paper is, it contains everything in the universe in it. There's no individual separate existence. When we talk of emptiness, we must ask, empty of what? Empty of a separate self. Empty of a separate self-existence. If we look at this retreat, we can't just say, this retreat exists by itself. Look what makes up this retreat. The people, the buildings, the food, the Buddha. The Buddha's here. (laughs) The milkman, the postman, the nature all around us, the birds, the rain, the bell. Everything exists together. Nothing could happen by itself. When we look at our own bodies, we talk about what makes up the body. There are lungs, heart, kidney, blood, gallbladders, intestines, muscles. Can any of those exist by themselves? a coexistence. A vo- they volunteer their services to each other. They cannot exist by themselves. 
They're empty. Each thing is empty of individuality. But it's full of everything else. Everything containing an essence of everything else. Or it wouldn't exist. So when we say that form is empty, the form of something is empty, what we mean is form is empty of a separate self-existence but it is full of everything in the cosmos. Full of everything. Nothing can be by itself. Which means we're never alone. This word doesn't mean what we thought it meant. And then this brings me to friendship. Because when we see deeply in this way, we understand friendship. In this way, I see that I am intimately connected with everything, that nothing is separate from me. The air, the water, earth, fire, these elements make up my body flowers, animals, other beings. They all make up conditions for my reality. Thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations. They're intimate parts of my reality. There's nothing alien. There's nothing to push away. When I perceive in this way It allows for a feeling of deep friendship towards all things. And this is what we mean by metta, loving kindness. It means deep friendship. When we connect deeply with this sense of connection and this sense of truly who we are, in seeing this way, these past few years, it's given me the sense that I need to honor everything in my experience. I see things now as an offering, as a gift, in a way, that's coming to me. In India, there's a word called prasad, the offering that we give to the guru. And it's as if all things that rise, arise in my experience are a form of prasad, an offering to me as a teaching, as something for me to be awake to. It's a gift for me, for my learning, for my discovery. And in seeing these things of my experience as sacred, It gives me the sense of just wanting to bow down to each thing as it comes. Honoring each thing that comes, each thought, each feeling, each sensation, image, sight, sound, every person, every situation. It's a gift. 
a gift for my own awakening, for my own enlightenment. How could I mistreat this? How could I disrespect this? I see that there's nothing to be afraid of. The fear may arise, but that is also a gift. It's also part of what I want to honor in my experience. And this is the friendship, making friends with every aspect of ourselves. Rilke, in his letters to a young poet, another beautiful phrase many of you have heard, he says, Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. Everything's just asking for our love. Can we, can we respond in that way? Not push it away. Why push anything away? Tony Packer, another great meditation teacher, a woman, She says, change comes on its own when the self realizes its total impotence. Then it may quiet down in this realization. It is the self that wants to save itself. When the self is quiet in silent understanding, something wholly new is taking place. So this is a radically different way to live. Really seeing one's interconnectedness with all things. This points to an essential aspect of the Buddhist teachings, which is the non-harming, non-violence. This is the essential aspect. And why emptiness can never be taught without compassion. Because one may see the emptiness, but they are left with a sense of voidness or nothingness. But when one sees the interconnection, then the compassion arises. They go together. They're called two wings of a bird, emptiness and compassion. If you throw a pebble into a pond, you'll see the ripples flow out to the shore. You see how all things are touched by those ripples. Everything's interrelated. By seeing this clearly, this awakens our compassion to care for and protect all living beings. And by knowing this deeply, we come to realize that we're responsible for everything that we do, everything that we say, and everything that we think. As the Buddha said, do not overlook actions merely because they are small, 
however small a spark may be, it can, it can burn down a haystack as big as a mountain. So every little action, the responsibility in that. And from here springs the meaning and the purpose in our lives. When we look around, we can see how desperately we need to restore a sense of living interconnection in our world. And we can see how desperately we need to restore that interconnection in ourselves in order for the benefit of all beings. So this is our task. To awaken to the truth that we are not separate, isolated beings. When we know the truth of who we are, this compassion flows effortlessly. There is no doubt about our purpose, our responsibility, and our energy is free and clear to help relieve the pain we see around us. And then we can shine our light wherever we go. Let's sit for a few minutes together.